Welcome back to the Neurotransmitters, a clinical neurology podcast, a show about everything related to neurology with the goal of reducing your neurophobia. I'm your host, Dr. Michael Kentris, and today we're going to be getting back to basics and talk a little bit about some brainstem anatomy. Brainstem anatomy can be pretty complicated, but I think it's helpful to develop a framework mentally to categorize the structures there where different problems in different areas can correlate with different symptoms. And I think that helps make it a lot more concrete. Otherwise, it is very abstract. So let's jump right in. So the brainstem essentially is limited above by the thalamus or the thalami bilaterally and below by the spinal cord. And it's responsible for all the sensory and motor information coming and going to and from the brain, as well as control of a lot of the cranial nerves and other functions. So there's three broad areas in the brainstem. Uh, at the topmost level, there's the midbrain, then the pons, and at the lowest level, the medulla. So within those areas, there are essentially five categories of structures. There's the descending motor corticospinal tracts, the ascending somatosensory paths, that's the dorsal columns and the spinal thalamic tracts, the cranial nerve nuclei, the cerebellar peduncles, and the reticular activating system and neurotransmitter specific projection pathways of which there are several, including the substantia nigra for dopamine, the locus ceruleus for norepinephrine, the median raphine nuclei for serotonin, and the pedunculopontine nuclei for acetylcholine. So we've just gone through quite a few structures already, so let's try and place those in our mental map of the brainstem. So the corticospinal tracts, our motor tracts, are more along the anterior or ventral side of the brainstem. The somatosensory pathways are mostly posterior and dorsal, except for in the mid-medulla. And then we have the cranial nerve nuclei. One useful way to categorize where the different cranial nerve nuclei are in the brainstem is to just group them up into groups of four. So broadly speaking, in the midbrain, we have one through four, in the pons, five through eight, and the medulla, nine through 12. Now there are some exceptions to this. Uh, one and 11 don't actually connect to the brainstem. And cranial nerves 5 and 8, their nuclei don't really fit nice and neat into one level. And we'll talk about those later on down the line. But broadly speaking, this is a useful mental way to organize where these nuclei are. Now, I'm not planning to go in-depth about each cranial nerve's function today. Uh, we'll probably have different episodes devoted to the different nerves or different functions related to those nerves down the road. So this is going to be a little more superficial in terms of function, although we will get to some clinical syndromes near the end. So let's, again, now we have our kind of mental map of where the cranial nerves are located vertically, but let's look at it a little more horizontally. So in the midbrain, you know, cranial nerve three and four nuclei are more medial. Moving down to the pons, cranial nerve six is more medial. Five's motor and seven, a little more lateral than that, and five's light touch, even more lateral. Cranial nerve eight is located more at the pontomedullary junction on the lateral side. So eight's one of those ones we mentioned earlier where it kind of isn't sitting right in the middle of one, and cranial nerve five actually covers a few different levels as we move on to the medulla. So cranial nerve 12's nucleus is midline. 9 and 10, a little more lateral, and then 5's pain and temperature sensation, even more lateral than that. So let's move on to the cerebellar peduncles. So there are three peduncles, the inferior, which connects the medulla to the cerebellum, the middle, which connects the pons to the cerebellum, and the superior, which connects the upper pons to the cerebellum. 
It would be logical if it connected to the midbrain, but sadly, things in anatomy are very rarely as logical as we would hope them to be. So let's move on to the vascular supply. So we've got three main arteries that we're usually thinking about uh, for supplying the brainstem. So we have the superior cerebellar artery, which supplies the midbrain. The superior midbrain, though, does get some supply from the posterior cerebral arteries. There is the anterior inferior cerebellar artery for the pons primarily, and the posterior inferior cerebellar artery for the medulla. So the superior cerebellar artery, or SCA, and the anterior inferior cerebellar artery, or AICA, usually come from the basilar artery. The posterior inferior cerebellar artery, or pica, usually comes off of the vertebral artery. Now, all that being said, variations in anatomy are very common, and especially as we move upwards from there into the circle of Willis, lots of different variations can be seen. So, we've talked about all of these anatomic structures, we have a basic framework, but what is the actual clinical application of this? So, I know we're not going to get too much into the cranial nerves because that can be a very in-depth subject, but let's briefly touch on each of them. So cranial nerve one, or the olfactory nerve, is smell, essentially, right? And this is one of the ones that doesn't actually connect to the brainstem. So we'll kind of put that to the side for the moment. Cranial nerve two, the optic nerve, is responsible for transmitting visual information into the brain. And it also has a reflex to cranial nerve three for controlling pupillary light reaction. Cranial nerve three is in charge of most of the movements of the eye, including the pupillary dilation and contraction. And again, these are all in the midbrain so far. Cranial nerve 4, very specific nerve, controls just one muscle for eye movement. And I'm going to jump ahead to the pons now, because the sixth nerve, the abducens, also does one movement. This one's lateral eye movement. It abducts the eye. A lot of times you'll see people group 3, 4, and 6 together, just because between the three of them, they cover essentially the majority of the eye movements. Now let's go back a little bit to cranial nerve 5, the trigeminal nerve. This one covers a lot of territory, does a lot of things. So it does the muscles of mastication or chewing, as well as providing sensation to the face. And that sensation has three branches, hence the trigeminal nerve. Uh, we have the ophthalmic, the maxillary, and the mandibular branches. Moving on to cranial nerve 7, the facial nerve. This one provides most of the movements of the face. And it also does some special sensations as well. It provides taste to the anterior two-thirds of the tongue and also provides a little branch to the stapedius near the tympanic membrane to help deaden sounds that are too loud. Cranial nerve 8 is the vestibular cochlear nerve. And this, as the name would suggest, provides function from the vestibular system and the cochlear system, so balance and hearing respectively. So a lot of times these two things do tend to go together if it's affecting the nerve itself. I'm going to group number 9, glossopharyngeal, and number 10, vagus, together. As between the two of them, they're doing all the laryngeal and pharyngeal muscles, although the vagus is doing most of the work on that front. The vagus nerve does a multitude of other things that we won't get too into, but just briefly, it helps with vocal cord control, covers a lot of autonomic bases for blood pressure and heart rate, as well as providing control to some of the uh, thoracic and abdominal viscera. Cranial nerve 11, the spinal accessory nerve, a little more simple than the last one. It provides control of the sternocleidomastoid and the trapezius muscles, so helping with turning the head and shrugging the shoulders primarily. Last is the hypoglossal nerve, number 12, which controls tongue movement. So that's our quick overview of the cranial nerves and their function. 
Again, we will revisit these in the future, a little more in depth on individual functions and locations depending on the nerve. So how are these signs useful to us and how do they help us localize to the brainstem? As we've talked about in previous episodes, one of our main goals in neurologic practice is to quote, localize the lesion. So we have the timeline and we have the neuroanatomic localization. So one of the key features that makes us think brainstem are crossed signs. Because the motor pathways cross at the pyramids around the cervical medullary junction and the dorsal columns in the medulla and the spinothalamic tracts in the spinal cord, most brainstem lesions will cause ipsilateral, that is the same side, bulbar symptoms, but contralateral weakness or numbness in the body. So the face and the body will be on opposite sides. The main exception to this is cranial nerve 4, the trochlear nerve, which does decussate in the brainstem. So now we have a suspicion that we're in the brainstem. So how about medial versus lateral brainstem syndromes? So if we think back, medially, we're usually going to have more motor symptoms. And we're going to be talking about stroke mostly because that's how a lot of this neuroanatomy was initially characterized. There's a quote in neurology that uh, you learn neuroanatomy stroke by stroke. And that's what we're going to be doing today as well. So medial motor symptoms, and that's usually related to a occlusion of a penetrating branch of the vertebrobasilar system. Dorsolaterally are usually more sensory and special sensory symptoms, plus or minus cerebellar symptoms, and this is usually related to occlusion of one of the more circumferential arteries, so that would be our SCA, our AICA, or our PICA. Medial medullary syndrome, right? again we are medial at this point, so more weakness, so ipsilateral tongue weakness and contralateral extremity weakness, and this is usually related to an occlusion of the anterior spinal artery. A more famous syndrome is lateral medullary syndrome, or Wallenberg syndrome, and this has a plethora of symptoms, so let's go through a few of these. So we have loss of facial and pain temperature sensation ipsilaterally due to five involvement, contralateral pain and temperature loss in the limbs, vertigo, potentially, from the eighth nerve, nausea, vomiting, and ataxia, likely from the cerebellum, dysarthria and dysphagia from the nucleus ambiguous to nine and ten, and an ipsilateral Horner syndrome from the descending oculosympathetic pathway. And this is usually due to occlusion of the pica. Next we have top of the basilar syndrome. This can affect the midbrain and one or both of the posterior cerebral arteries. A lot of times you'll have vertical gaze abnormalities, ptosis, confusion, uh, and visual field loss. So it can be a very confusing syndrome when it presents clinically. Locked-in syndrome is another classic one, usually due to basilar artery occlusion. And a lot of times these people will be awake and conscious, but they appear comatose because they're paralyzed. And all that they may be able to do is have vertical eye movements and blinking. So in people who have a pontine lesion, it's always important to ask them to try and move their eyes to see if there's any ability to communicate. I have taken care of a couple patients with locked-in syndrome over the years, and it is always a devastating neurologic injury. But it's important that we make sure that these patients aren't actually comatose, because uh, that can certainly change the trajectory and the conversation that we have with them and their family. Lastly, let's talk about a situation where maybe multiple cranial nerves are involved, multiple dysfunctions. So it's good to group these into two categories. Are these nerves all localized together, or are they more diffuse, widespread? So there are different areas where different nerves will cluster together as they travel to and from uh, different parts of the brain and the brain stem. So we're not going to go through all of those, but a few 
classic ones that I think are important to remember are the cavernous sinus, because there are so many here. So we have cranial nerve three, four, six, the first branch of five, and the second branch of five, or V1 and V2. So whenever you start seeing eye movement abnormalities, facial sensation, pupillary abnormalities, and there's maybe headache as well, you think maybe like cavernous sinus thrombosis or other lesions in that area. Another classic one is the internal auditory canal. Seventh and eighth nerve go together like peanut butter and jelly here. So a lot of times if you have something like, say, a vestibular schwannoma, you'll develop hearing loss and facial weakness together. That was the classic presentation. So there are many others that can go together, but I think these two are enough to talk about for the moment. If we're looking at more widespread cranial nerve injuries, then we have to think about more diffuse processes, things like meningitis, inflammatory or autoimmune conditions, uh, neoplastic conditions like carcinomatous meningitis, Guillain-Barre syndrome, and there are, of course, disorders that can mimic different types of cranial nerve problems. So we think of things like, say, myasthenia gravis or other neuromuscular junction disorders, which can cause weakness in the bulbar muscles. So that's my wrap-up on brainstem anatomy. I hope it's been helpful to you. I know it's a very dense subject, a very daunting subject, and certainly when I was learning neuroanatomy, it was one of those things where you just revisit it over and over again until it hopefully starts sticking. My goal is to work our way through the rest of the neuroaxis, and after we've done kind of a broad overview of each area, coming back more detailed on different specific areas that get a little more in-depth on different functions, more specific neurologic syndromes, uh, more pathologic states, and so forth. So if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. This really helps with getting the show noticed, and please do make sure to subscribe for future episodes. You can find me on Twitter at Dr. Kentris, that's D-R-K-E-N-T-R-I-S, or by email at the Podcast at gmail.com, and feel free to send me any of your questions or show suggestions. I'll see you next time.